Mr. Chairman, distinguished platform associates, fellow Americans, three years ago, the Supreme Court of this nation rendered in simple, eloquent, and unequivocal language a decision which will long be stenciled on the mental sheets of succeeding generations. For all men of goodwill, This May 17th decision came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of human captivity. It came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of disinherited people throughout the world who had dared only to dream of freedom. Unfortunately, this noble and sublime decision has not gone without opposition. This opposition has often risen to ominous proportions. Many states have risen up in open defiance. The legislative halls of the South ring loud with such words as interposition and nullification. But even more, all types of conniving methods are still being used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. The denial of this sacred right is a tragic betrayal of the highest mandates of our democratic tradition. So our most urgent request to the President of the United States and every member of Congress is to give us the right to vote, give us the ballot, and we will no longer have to worry the federal government about our basic rights. Give us the ballot, and we will no longer plead to the federal government for passage of an anti-lynching law. We will, by the power of our vote, write the law on the stature books of the South, and bring an end to the dastardly acts of the hooded perpetrators of violence. Give us the ballot, and we will transform the salient misdeeds of bloodthirsty mobs into the calculated good deeds of orderly citizens. Give us the ballot, 
And we will fill our legislative halls with men of goodwill and send to the sacred halls of Congress men who will not sign a Southern Manifesto because of their devotion to the Manifesto of Justice. Give us the ballot, and we will place judges on the benches of the South who will do justly and love mercy. And we will place at the head of the southern states governors who, will, who have felt not only the tang of the human, but the glow of the divine. Give us the ballot, and we will quietly and nonviolently, without rancor or bitterness, implement the Supreme Court's decision of May 17, 1954. In this juncture of our nation's history, there is an urgent need for dedicated and courageous leadership. If we are to solve the problems ahead and make racial justice a reality, this leadership must be fourfold. First, there is need for strong, aggressive leadership from the federal government. So far, only the judicial branch of the government has evinced this quality of leadership. If the executive and legislative branches of the government were as concerned about the protection of our citizenship rights as the federal courts have been, then the transition from a segregated to an integrated society would be infinitely smoother. But we so often look to Washington in vain for this concern. In the midst of the tragic breakdown of law and order, the executive branch of the government is all too silent and apathetic. In the midst of the desperate need for civil rights legislation, the legislative branch of the government is all too stagnant and hypocritical. This dearth of positive leadership from the federal government is not confined to one particular political party. Both political parties have betrayed the cause of justice. The Democrats have betrayed it by capitulating to the prejudices and undemocratic practices of the Southern Dixocrats. The Republicans have betrayed it by capitulating to the blatant hypocrisy of right-wing reactionary Northerners. These men so often have a high blood pressure of words and an anemia of deeds. <laughs> In the midst of these prevailing conditions, we come to Washington today pleading with the President and members of Congress to provide a strong moral and courageous, courageous leadership for a situation that cannot permanently be evaded. We come humbly to say to the men in the forefront of our government that the civil rights issue is not an ephemeral, evanescent, domestic issue. 
that can be kicked about by reactionary guardians of the status quo. It is rather an eternal moral issue which may well determine the destiny of our nation in the ideological struggle with communism. The hour is late. The clock of destiny is ticking out. We must act now before it is too late. A second area in which there is need for strong leadership is from the white northern liberals. There is a dire need today for liberalism which is truly liberal. What we are witnessing today in so many northern communities is a sort of quasi-liberalism which is based on the principle of looking sympathetically at all sides. It is a liberalism so bent on seeing all sides that it fails to become committed to either side. It is a liberalism that is so objectively analytical that it is not subjectively committed. It is a liberalism which is neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. We call for liberalism from the North which will be thoroughly committed to the ideal of racial justice and will not be deterred by the propaganda and subtle words of those who say, slow up for a while, you're pushing too fast. A third source that we must look to for strong leadership is from the moderates of the white South. It is unfortunate that at this time the leadership of the white South stems from the close-minded reactionaries. These persons gain prominence and power by the dissemination of false ideas and by deliberately appealing to the deepest hate responses within the human mind. It is my firm belief that this close-minded, reactionary, recalcitrant group constitutes a numerical minority. There are in the White South more open-minded moderates than appears on the surface. These persons are silent today because of fear of social, political, and economic reprisals. God grant that the white moderates of the South will rise up courageously, without fear, and take up the leadership in this tense period of transition. I cannot close without stressing the urgent need for strong courageous and intelligent leadership from the Negro community. We need a leadership that is calm and yet positive. This is no day for the rabble-rouser, whether he be Negro or white. We must realize that we are grappling with the most weighty social problem of this nation. And in grappling with such a complex problem, that is no place for misguided emotionalism. We must work passionately and unrelentingly for the goal of freedom. But we must be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. 
We must never struggle with falsehood, hate, or malice. We must never become bitter. I know how we feel sometimes. That is the danger that those of us who have been forced so long to stand amid the tragic midnight of oppression, those of us who have been trampled over, those of us who have been kicked about, that is the danger that we will become bitter. But if we will become bitter and indulge in hate campaigns, the, old, the new order which is emerging will be nothing but a duplication of the old order. We must meet hate with love. We must meet physical force with soul force. That is still a voice crying out through the vista of time, saying, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Then and only then can you matriculate into the university of eternal life. That same voice cries out in turns lifted to cosmic proportions. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. History is replete with the bleached bones of nations that fail to follow this command. We must follow nonviolence and love. Now, I'm not talking about a sentimental, shallow kind of love. I'm not talking about eros, which is a sort of aesthetic, romantic love. I'm not even talking about philia, which is a sort of intimate affection between personal friends. But I'm talking about agape. I'm talking about the love of God in the hearts of men. I'm talking about a type of love which will cause you to love the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. We've got to love. That is another warning signal. We talk a great deal about our rights, and rightly so. We proudly proclaim that three-fourths of the peoples of the world are colored. We have the privilege of noticing in our generation the great drama of freedom and independence as it unfolds in Asia and Africa. All of these things are in line with the unfolding work of providence. But we must be sure that we accept them in the right spirit. We must not seek to use our emerging freedom and our growing power to do the same thing to the white minority that has been done to us for so many centuries. Our aim must never be to defeat or humiliate the white man. We must not become victimized with a philosophy of black supremacy. God is not interested merely in freeing black men and brown men and yellow men, but God is interested in freeing the whole human race. And we must work with determination to create a society, not where black men are superior and other men are inferior and vice versa, but a society in which all men will live together as brothers and respect the dignity and worth of human personality. We must also avoid the temptation of being victimized with the psychology of victors. 
we have won marvelous victories. And through the work of the NACP, we have been able to do some of the most amazing things of this generation. And I come this afternoon with nothing, nothing but praise for this great organization, the work that it has already done and the work that it will do in the future. And although they, although they outlawed in Alabama and other states, the fact still remains that this organization has done more to achieve civil rights for Negroes than any other organization we can point to. And certainly this is fine. But we must not, however, remain satisfied with a court victory over our white brothers. We must respond to every decision with an understanding of those who have opposed us and with an appreciation of the difficult adjustments that the court orders pose for them. We must act in such a way as to make possible a coming together of white people and colored people on the basis of a real harmony of interest and understanding. We must seek an integration based on mutual respect. I conclude by saying that each of us must keep faith in the future. Let us not despair. Let us realize that as we struggle for justice and freedom, we have cosmic companionship. This is the long faith of the Hebraic Christian tradition, that God is not some Aristotelian unmoved mover who merely contemplates upon himself. He is not merely a self-knowing God, but an ever-loving God, forever working through history for the establishment of his kingdom. And those of us who call the name of Jesus Christ find something of an event in our Christian faith that tells us this. That is something in our faith that says to us, never despair, never give up. Never feel that the cause of righteousness and justice is doomed. That is something in our Christian faith at the center of it, which says to us that Good Friday may occupy the throne for a day, but ultimately it must give way to the triumphant beat of the drums of Easter. That is something in our faith that says evil may so shape events. That Caesar will occupy the palace and Christ the cross. But one day that same Christ will rise up and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the, name, the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. There is something in this universe which justifies Carlisle in saying no lie can live forever. There is something in this universe which justifies William Cullen Bryant in saying, truth crushed to earth will rise again. That is something in this universe which justifies James Russell Lowell in saying, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Go out with that faith today. 
Go back to your homes in the Southland to that faith with that faith today. Go back to Philadelphia, to New York, to Detroit and Chicago with that faith today. The universe is on our side in the struggle. Stand up for justice. Sometimes it gets hard, but it is always difficult to get out of Egypt. But the Red Sea always stands before you with discouraging dimensions. And even after you cross the Red Sea, you have to move through a wilderness with prodigious hilltops of evil and gigantic mountains of opposition. But I say to you, this afternoon, keep moving. Let nothing slow you up. Move on with dignity and honor and respectability. I realize that it will cause a restless night sometimes. It might cause losing a job. It will cause suffering and sacrifice. It might even cause physical death for some. But if physical death is the price that some must pay, to free their children from a permanent life of psychological death, then nothing can be more Christian. Keep going today. Keep moving amid every obstacle. Keep moving amid every mounting of opposition. And if you will do that with dignity, when the history books are written in the future, the historians will have to look back and say, there lived a great people, a people with fleecy locks and black complexion, were a people who injected new meaning into the veins of civilization, a people which stood up with dignity and honor and saved Western civilization in her darkest hour, a people that gave new integrity and a new dimension of love to our civilization. When that happens, the morning stars will sing together, and the sons of God will shout for joy. Yes.